Okay. Welcome, welcome to our Tuesday night Torah class, everybody. We're ROT, as we say in the ta trade, right on time. So um, let me open with a word of prayer. Well, Father God, thank you for the nice day today. Thank you for uh, all these people that found time in their schedule to come out and, and look at your Torah. I'd ask that you'd bless us tonight as we discuss, discuss the, the passages that we're going to read. I'd, la I'd uh, also like to pray for Joe Green, who's in the hospital, um, and for Alfonso, who's uh, with his mother, who's passed away. They're just part of our group, and just uh, keep them in your care until they can return. Just thank you for loving us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, let's see. <clears throat> Last time, we're, we're going through the book of Exodus, as you know, and even though I could try to spread it out tonight by talking real slowly, uh, I don't think that we can, we can't, let's see, we will finish the book of Exodus tonight for sure. Okay. Exodus what? We're going to Exodus, Exodus. I should have caught that quicker, but yeah, that's exactly right. Um, let's see, last time, last time we, uh, we've gone through the incident of the golden calf, and Moses went back up on the hill, and and had to get two more tablets because he broke the first ones and came down and, and they got the, we, we've been through this uh, very detailed description of uh, how to build the tabernacle and now we're in the middle of them building the tabernacle. Last week we talked about Bezalel and Oholiab who were the kind of the, the chief artisans and designers for this stuff and uh, all the people that, uh, that contributed and that worked on building all the articles for the uh, tabernacle. We've got, uh, we left off last, I, I but I have this thing adjusted wrong again, so tell me if I need to readjust it. Anyway, we left off, they were in, we were in chapter 38, I believe. Um, they had built all the, the tent and the coverings and the, the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread and the menorah the altar of incense, and the, uh, chapter 38 began with the description of building the altar of burnt offering. Does anybody remember what the altar of burnt offering was made of? Paul does. Nope. Well, good. Good. Say it so that we can hear it on the PA system. Uh, acacia wood. Really? So how, do, how come it didn't burn up? Oh, because it was, oh, it's good. Because what? It was cut, wasn't it covered in something? It's covered in bronze. Yeah. Bronze. But hmm, wouldn't the heat still kind of cause, what would it do? Would it well, make that okay. wood we'll, petrified? We'll have the physics lesson here, right? The, okay. Uh, in order for the wood to burn, it would need air. So if you covered ah. it with bronze enough so that air couldn't get in, then it wouldn't burn. Got it. Okay. At least that's my assumption. Um, anyway, the I think, I don't know if we talked about... Uh, Chapter 38, verse 8. Chapter 38, verse 8 is just one sentence. I'll read that, and you can tell if we talked about it. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So did we talk about that? So I think we, I mentioned that, uh, you know, all the rest of this stuff, you know, make it cubit and a half wide and two cubits long and all this kind of stuff and put rings here and put rings there and do this and do that and do everything else. The 
this uh, basin, this laver they sometimes call it, was, there was no description. It just basically said, you know, make a, a basin and fill it full of water. And um, I think I mentioned the last time, when they described it early on in the book of Exodus, they just said, make it. They didn't, they said, make it out of bronze. Um, but what did it say it was made of? Made from the mirrors that uh, only the more well-to-do women could actually have a mirror. And, of course, they didn't have glass, silver-backed mirrors. They had just metal. But if you took a piece of copper or bronze and you just polished the heck out of it, you could kind of see your face in it. That's all I was going to say. That's all you are going to say? So that's what they used was hand mirrors. And so the, the, the kind of the legend, if you will, that goes along with this is that its size was determined by the number of mirrors that were contributed. So nobody really knows what it looked like, but they took those bronze mirrors and, and made that labor from it. Yeah. One thing that's awesome is they were trading vanity for cleanliness. Yes. Yeah. I, I, there's a whole lot of symbolism in, in turning in your hand mirror for this. Yeah. Yeah. Marcus got something. Uh, what what were the women serving there at the at the meeting tent at the door of the meeting tent? What what did they do? Well, were they ushers or were they? <laughs> <laughs> now it was not um, greeters. I, I'm sorry, I really don't know. Yeah, it, I, I thought it was I've outside the. I, I didn't think it was. It says entrance to the tent of meeting, but I really think that they were outside the courtyard. That's what I really think. I don't think they were inside the courtyard. I think they were outside the courtyard. Um, and I gather, you know, they were like the, yeah, the meters and greeters, if you will. They would, you know, they'd go, uh, they would, hmm. you know, they'd take your name and number and write your thing here and we'll call <laughs> you whenever they'd run the little machine or whatever. Maybe they just, maybe they just lend the mirrors to those that were going to sacrifice and make sure their appearance was. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the mirrors were demolished. The mirrors were yeah. used to make the labor. So the mirrors okay. were no more. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if it says that or not, but I'm sure that's, that's the intent here. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So the way I've always understood that, I could be wrong, but the way I understood that was they, those women donated their mirrors, and those mirrors were then cut up and melted or whatever they did to them in order to make this bronze labor. Yeah. Paul? So the mirrors of that time wouldn't have been glass like what we have today. Nope. What nope. would they have been made out of? Yep. They, they, I'm not even sure they had glass back then. I don't think they did. And if they did have glass, it certainly wasn't this nice float stuff, and they certainly didn't know how to put a silver coating on it. Um, there was glass, but it wasn't manufactured glass. It mm -hmm. was remnants of various destruction that had taken place in, in okay. the past. So okay. some of them would have it as like a, like we would have stones or gems or, or stuff. They okay. Would have. All right. As recently as just 200 years ago, you know, they, um, the glass that you could get for windows was real poor. You know, you, you didn't see clearly through it at all, and it was expensive. There was remnants of glass from, from some of the, the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction and stuff like that. There was, okay. was extreme heat 
yeah. sorry, extreme heat that had yeah. taken place well, in history, and that was not for mere production. It was just like it. It was a happenstance. It was a byproduct. A byproduct. Yeah. Exactly. If you take if you take a big blowtorch and you blowtorch a bunch of sand, you can get some glass-like stuff. Yeah. So what was Paul referring to when he says, "Looking through the glass darkly"? Guess they had some glass. No, no, it's okay. We don't want to go off in the weeds about that. I could be wrong about the glass. Maybe they had it a long time ago. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a somewhat, well, that's, I'm sure it was relatively rare. It was probably expensive because it was a, in order to make glass, you have to get very high temperature levels and you have to manage purity and stuff like that that they weren't that good at. Yeah. At the same time, they had pottery, which is a form of glass making that would be heated and melted yeah, and bent down, but, but it, would it wouldn't been, have been clear. It wouldn't have been transparent. Yeah, right. I don't know. Whatever. Don't know. I've also heard the same thing about, you know, we hear the word bronze or brass. What it most likely was, it was some um, impure alloy of copper. It's more likely what it was. So I've all, sometimes you see it translated as copper. Anyway... Uh-oh. <laughs> We're never going to get well, it. Well, um, <laughs> I know. It's my fault. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, well, just since you brought the copper thing up, uh, copper does have antibacterial qualities. Sure to it, So that would help in the uh, whole cleanliness yeah. arena. Yeah, that way the water would stay fresher longer. Yeah. Moving along, Okay. <laughs> Chapter 38, I think we did do, I, I don't recall exactly, but I believe we did do from verse 9 through the uh, verse 20, which was about the courtyard. The courtyard was this, uh, these uh, white panels that were, oh, I don't know, roughly 10 or 15 feet long and about 7 or 8 feet high, and they went around this entire courtyard, and they had poles and sockets to put the poles in and everything for the court. Well, you can see the... We had pictures. I didn't have them tonight. But anyway, talked about those. Anyway, I think we stopped at the end of the parashah, which was Exodus 38. And the next one, it's parashah 23 called Pekudai. Pekudai means that counts. And you'll see why here in a minute. It starts in uh, Exodus 38, verse 21. Exodus chapter 38, verse 21. And I wanted to talk about this for a couple of minutes. So I'm going to read the, from verse 21 to the end of chapter 38, and then we can talk about it for a couple of minutes. So it says, These are the amounts of the materials used for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which were recorded at Moses' command by the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made everything that Yahweh commanded Moses. With him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, a craftsman and designer, and an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. The total amount of gold from the wave offering used for all the work on the sanctuary was 29 talents, and 730 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. So I'll stop there. Do you remember how much a talent weighs? 75 pounds. I mean, it's people 
think, or let's see, it's, it's widely believed that a talent weighed 75 pounds, more or less. So 29 talents would be 29 times 75, you can do the math, and then there were 730 shekels besides that. So um, I had figured it out once that it was about three, three and three quarters, almost four tons of gold. Okay? Let me go on. The silver obtained from those of the community who were counted in the census was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. One becca per person, that is, a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, from everyone who had crossed over to those counted, 20 years or old or more, a total of 603,550 men. The 100 talents of silver were used to cast the bases for the sanctuary and for the curtain. 100 bases from the 100 talents, one talent for each base. They used the 1,775 uh, 1, shekels to make the hooks for the posts and to overlay the tops of the posts and to make their bands. So the amount of silver used was about two and a half, no, about... Oh, the gold was about a ton. I lied to you. The gold was about a ton, and the silver was like three and three-quarter ton of silver. What was the main, what did the most of the silver go for? What was it used for? It says back here. Verse 27, the 100 talents of silver were used to cast the bases for the sanctuary and for the curtain. One hundred bases from the one hundred talents, one talent for each base. So these bases were these plates. They were probably in the neighborhood of a, a foot by a foot, and they were kind of thick, and they weighed 75 pounds, and they had slots in them. And so what they would do is they'd take these, these bases and they would lay them out where they needed them, and they would take the big gold-plated planks and put them in the slots. And that's, they did that on three walls, the north wall, the west wall, and the south wall. And then they put these rods through them. You can kind of look at this model back in the back and get an idea of how that worked. But anyway, those sockets were made of silver, and each one of them, according to this, weighed 75 pounds. Then the other silver, the silver, did you get the reference to uh, um, the one becca per person, that is, half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel from everyone who had crossed over to those 20 years old or more. Do you remember what, uh, what was going on there? What they were doing? Where that, where that came from? It was, uh, it's where I'm reading is in uh, verse 26. We read, okay, John's got it. Go ahead. So, where, where, where does the half shekel come from, or the age limit of 20, or both? What's your question? I didn't hear the last part of what you said. What is your question? Okay, where did the half, shekel, half shekel? Where did the half shekel come from? Well, Obviously. that was one of the insurance programs. I think it was health insurance program <laughs> that Yahweh had. Really? Explain that. Oh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. <laughs> okay. I thought the 20 years old was also about the, the count of... That that's the, what I was getting. The draft to. age. Those half shekels were used when they took a census. You know, sometime during this building process, they counted everybody and the people. I say everybody. It wasn't everybody. They counted the men age 20 and over, and the way they counted them was they all had to contribute 
one half shekel of silver to the sanctuary treasury. And so that's how come that number 603,550 men was there. This is because he got 603,550 half shekels, one from each man. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. What did you call this, Parsha? Pekudai? Pekud. Well, okay. Pekud is how I have it. Or, uh, yeah, Pekudi. But it's this Pekad again, like when he says, I'll visit you. Yes. I just have a thing about this word. I don't know why. Okay. When he, you know, I will visit you, that's another, that's another translation of it. Okay. Like in Exodus 20, verse 5. The other question is, are you going to comment on the number 630,550? Because 600,000 was mentioned in Exodus 12, 37 in my notes. Are you going to talk about that at all? No, no, go ahead. Oh, okay. You can talk about it. Well, and it said approximately, so I don't know if, what it meant by that. Well, it meant that, that <laughs> it meant it wasn't the precise number. Well, but why? <laughs> We're not talking about the Torah here. I don't know. That doesn't seem acceptable to me. Either. It doesn't? Well, this, but this anyway. 603,550 seems pretty precise. Well, exactly. So why is it precise here and not there? Anyway, the difference is, 3,550, and my notes are that others, the, the others have died in the plagues. That's a good point. They had 3,000 die whenever the golden calf thing happened. Right. Exodus 32, 28. Very good point. So, I hadn't thought about that. Well, the you thing, had a little bit of, what do you want, you want to call it? Give and take? Yeah. They, uh, the other thing that occurs to me is during, the, uh, during this time, 600 and, you know, that's more than half a million people, and that's only counting the men. And people were going to be having birthdays and dying and doing stuff all along here, so that number necessarily was going to be kind of a, an approximation at best, you know, unless they counted everybody and made everybody stand still and not do anything or have babies or anything, you know, so it's always going to be a little bit off. Okay, the last thing I was going to read about was the verse 29, the bronze from the wave offering was 70 talents, and 2,400 shekels, they were used to make the bases for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the bronze altar with its bronze grating and all its utensils, and the bases for the surrounding courtyard, those for the entrance, its entrance, and the tent pegs and the tabernacle for the surrounding courtyard. So the, the bases that held the posts or the planks for the side of the tabernacle were made of silver, and the bases that held the poles for the white thing, white sheet that went clear around the courtyard were made of bronze. FYI, just for what it's worth. So that's just an interesting little portion. This is chapter 38. But now, if you go there now, you'll be behind because now we're in chapter 39. So like I say, all of this is just by way of uh, uh, describing what was being built by um, Bezalel and Oholiav and uh, the rest of the artisans. So let's move to chapter 39. Um, this also looks a little repetitious, so let's just read it and see if we can find something that we want to talk about there. Oh, you know, I had one other thing I wanted to talk about for just a minute. How much do you suppose all this weighed? Well, we had 
We had three and three-quarter tons of silver, a ton of gold, and two and a half tons of bronze. So right there, six or seven tons. Uh, and that doesn't count the, uh, you know, the, the tent, the Manchester, we call that in New Zealand, uh, and all the rest of the stuff that went into that. So it, it was probably on the order of 10 tons or better. So they, and they moved this. Anytime, anytime God said, you know, it's time to move, they moved it. Um, so you think, man, that must have been a lot of work. But one of the things I was looking at is um, there were probably, well, there was. There was somewhere between 32,000 and 75,000 adult male Levites. So each man, if you divide it out, each man would have had to carry less than a pound. Plus, they got six carts, which we're going to read about in numbers. So they had, you know, some guys had to carry stuff themselves, but a lot of it they put in the carts that they got. You're going to, okay. Mm-hmm. Mike's got something. Was it just the Levites responsible for transporting the tabernacle and everything in it? Yep. Now, we'll learn more about that in, uh, in the book of Numbers, but that's the truth. It's just the Levites. Um, so, I have a question here that I just kind of think it's fun to ponder for a little bit. Why do you suppose God wanted this information recorded? Why do you think He cared about this? I'm going to take a stab at it. Accountability is an act of righteousness. How's that sound? That sounds pretty good. I, I like that one. I like that one. Uh, this is a lot of wealth here, right? Yes, it is. It's, it's not, a lot not of a wealth. trivial amount of stuff. No, absolutely. I, I did some kind of a stab at it based on old numbers, but uh, it's, it would have been at least 10 million bucks. I think also the... the, the it's, I think this place acts like a bank as well later on. Yeah. And so accounting is important. Yeah. Not to know, to know what's, who's is who's and yeah. no, what's that's up. A good, that's a good point. That's a, I think it's also kind of, uh, I think accounting is important. God's a God of detail. He really is. You know, all the detail that we've been reading about in this thing is just uh, almost unbelievable. The fact that the the... The thing comes out after being translated in two different languages and sat on and piddled with for 3,500 years and still is, is, is as reasonable as it is. I mean, that's, that's really amazing. Okay, um, I guess I'd like to go ahead and read chapter 39 just because even though it's a little bit repetitious, we don't skip anything else, so why should we skip this? Would somebody like to read chapter 39? from the beginning through verse 31. 31 verses in chapter 39. Okay. I was going to say, here we get to hear some King James. King Jimmy. Yep. To 39? Chapter 39. Not aware of what verse? From the beginning to chapter 31. 31 verses. I want you to read 31 verses. And of the blue and purple and scarlet, they made cloths of service to do service in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as Yahweh commanded Moses. And he made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. 
And they did beat the gold into thin plates and cut it into wires to work in it in the blue and in the purple and in the scarlet and in the fine linen with cunning work. They made shoulder pieces for it to couple together. By the two edges was it coupled together. And the curious girdle of his ephod that was upon it was of the same according to the work thereof, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen, as Yahweh commanded Moses. And they wrought onyx stones enclosed in ouches of gold, graven as signets are, are graven, with the names of the children of Israel. And he put them on the shoulders of the ephod, that they should be stones for a memorial to the children of Israel, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Verse 8. And he made the breastplate of cunning work, and like the work of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen. It was four score they made the breastplate double. A span was the length thereof, and a span the breadth thereof, being doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones. The first row was sardius, topaz, and a carb carbuncle. And this was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in ouches of gold in their enclosings. And the stones were according to the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names. Like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name according to the twelve tribes. And they made upon the breastplate chains at the end of wreathed work of pure gold. And they made two ouches of gold and two gold rings and put the two rings in the two ends of the breastplate. breastplate. And they put the two wreathed chains of gold and the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. And the two ends of the two wreath chains, they fastened in the two ouches and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod before it. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate upon the border of it, which was on the side of the ephod inward. And they made two other golden rings and put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath toward the forepart of it over against the other coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod. And they did bind the breastplate by his rings unto the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue that made it that it might be above the curious girdle of the ephod and that the breastplate might not be loosed from the ephod as Yahweh commanded Moses. Verse 22. And he made the robe of the ephod woven work all of blue, and there was a, a hole in the midst of the robe as the, the hole of a habergion, habergion, and with a band round about the hole, all uh, that it should not rend. And they made upon the hems of the robe pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet and twine linen, and they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates upon the hem of the robe, and round about between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, round about them, round about the hem of the robe, to minister in. 
as, in, as Yahweh commanded Moses, 27. And they made coats of fine linen of woven, woven work for Aaron and for his sons. And, they, and a mitre of linen, fine linen and goodly bonnets of fine linen and the linen breeches of fine twine linen and a girdle of fine twine linen and a blue and purple and scarlet of needlework as Yahweh commanded Moses. And they made the blade the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it a writing like to engravings of a signet, Kadosh to Yahweh, and they tied unto it a lace of blue to fasten it on high upon the mitre as Yahweh commanded Moses. Okay, thank you. I realize that was a little bit tedious, but um, let's see, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out. First of all, the... The description of the breast piece is a little bit complicated, but if you remember, it said it was a span by a span. The span is, is the distance between your thumb and your forefinger, so that's about how big it was. And it was folded over, so it was made out of a piece of cloth that was really one span by two spans, and then they folded it over, and they hung it, you remember. They had, they had chains that went from the little shoulder things that had the onyx stones on it, and they went down and hung to these upper two corners, and then the lower two corners, which would have actually been in the middle of the thing, um, went down to the sash. And so it, it, the idea, I just, when I first read about it in the earlier section of Exodus, and it says in there, it says, so that it wouldn't swing out when Aaron bent over. So it was, it was you know, kind of tied tightly to his chest. I just thought that was interesting. And so the folded nature would enable uh, Aaron to reach his hand in either side, if you will, and you remember what was kept inside the breastplate? The urim and the thummim? Yeah. Okay. So that's all again described exactly as we had read about it the first time. Um, now, there was a phrase in there that was repeated really, really often. Did you catch the phrase? If you didn't, that's okay, but... Uh, you'll find it at the end of every paragraph if you happen to have paragraphs in yours. It says, um, as the Lord commanded Moses. Exactly as the Lord commanded Moses. So, um, it's over and over in there. Obviously, God told Moses exactly what he wanted and what they built was exactly what Moses told them to build. So... Any other thoughts about that, John? Tziva Yahweh et Moshe. Commandments Yahweh Moses to okay. Moses. Okay. So great. So now then, we might as well. We, we're almost finished. Mark's got something. So my question is. Um, are we a kingdom of priests? It's what we, yeah. If we believe we're from Ephraim, are we also a firstborn? Firstborn were supposed to be the priests, right? They were the ones that were supposed to be. Of the family, yeah. They were going to be the priests, but then because they blew it, God took the Levites. So yeah. there's many levels that point to why we, we should be acting as priests today, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Well, those are the commands of the priests. They're wearing caps. Forget the turban, but they're wearing caps. Mm -hmm. They've got a lot of other things there that they're wearing. 
So I often wonder, should we, should we be walking as priests or are we just talking as priests? <laughs> are we really holy to the Lord and are we the ones ministering and, you know, doing those things? Because, you know, the bride, it talks about the bride has adorned herself with the ornaments. Mm -hmm. She's put her ornaments on She's adorned herself. Mm -hmm. And so I look at this and I see that these priests have adorned themselves. Yep. And it's interesting that He's, they're putting that uh, holy to the Lord on the forehead, where's exactly where the seal of the tab goes, mm -hmm. because they become holy to the Lord because they had the heart of God, mm -hmm. both in Revelation and in, and in Ezekiel. So there's so many things in here, and, and we can go to several other places, but you know, in Revelation it says that Yeshua is coming back with turbans and diadems on his head, mm -hmm. yeah, because he's a priest. Yeah, I mean, this is what this is only the pattern that's shown from heaven. So if that's what they're doing in heaven, you know, you always wonder, okay, well, if we're a kingdom of priests. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's for sure. That's a good argument. So I, I don't disagree with that, but he's not wearing the breastplate every day. He doesn't wake up in the morning and that's his regular attire. No, that, that's true. So I, we're, we're, I'm just curious, what verse was it in that talks about the, would it be the turban or is it not in this? Okay. The, um, one of the things that I was uh, thinking of while you were talking was that what's the main role of the priest? Well, I, mean, I would say teach Torah and, yeah. and adjudicate yeah. according to Torah. Yeah, to teach the people the difference between clean and unclean and well, to, to obey the Torah and those kind of things. And so... Um, I'm not disagreeing with what you say, but as long as we're doing those kind of things, at least we're partly right. Yeah, okay. Do you have something, Margaret? Mm. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's go on and read what happens next. From verse 32. Would someone like to read from verse 32 to the end of the chapter, verse 43? The comment I had. Yes. You remember. I can't. Okay. It takes a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think in everything that we do, especially if we're doing it for Yahweh, it has to be the best. Yes. And a lot of times we forget that, that yeah. we're doing, if we're doing it for him, it should be the best. Yep, that's a very good point. Uh, anytime that there's anything done in the service of, of Yahweh, whether it be charity, whether it be service, or just um, our talk, everything should be the best. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Okay. Through the end? Yeah, verse 32, through the end of the chapter, end of chapter 39. All right. 32. Mm -hmm. Thus was all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses, so they did. And they brought the tabernacle unto Moses, the tent and all the, its furnitures, its tatches, its boards, its bars, and its pillars and its sockets. And the covering of the ram skin dyed red, and the covering of the badger skin, and the veil of the covering the ark of the testimony and the stave thereof, 
and the mercy seat, the table and all the vessels thereof, and the showbread, the pure candlestick with the lamps thereof, even with the lamps to be set in order, and all the vessels thereof, and the oil for the light, and the golden altar, and the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, and the hanging for the meeting tent door, the brazen altar, and its grate of brass, its staves, and all its vessels, the laver, and its base. 40. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, and the hangings for the court gate, its cords and its pins, and all the vessels of the service of the tabernacle for the tent of the congregation. The clothes of service to do service in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron, the priest and his son's garments to minister in the priest's office, according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses. So all the children of Israel made all the work. And Moses did look upon all the work and beheld. They had done it as Yahweh had commanded. Even so, they had done it, and Moses blessed them. Okay, so this is like the, the final walkthrough, right? This is the final inspection. And what was uh, Moses' conclusion uh, after inspecting everything after it was all finished? Well done. Well done. You, everything was done exactly the way, uh, yeah, the way Yahweh commanded it, and Moses agreed to that. And Moses was the right guy, because Moses was the guy that saw the plans, right? He's the one that really kind of knew how it should be done. And then, so what did Moses do? He baruched them. Yeah, he blessed them. And it harkens to uh, Genesis 1, when Yahweh looked at the work he had done, and he, he uh, said it was good. It was good, yeah. That's good. I guess one of the things I got from that, I'm not too sure if it follows, but it's uh, whenever you do the things that God asks you to do and you complete it and you've done it, like Margaret says, to the best of your ability, to, you know, as, as perfectly as you could, God blesses you. And I've, I've seen that in my life, so it's a good thing. Any other comments? Margaret's got something. Um, yeah, I was just going to comment on what John had mentioned earlier about, um, about the accounting. Each one of these, it looks like here he summarizes everything. It's kind of like the summary of, of it all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure as they picked up to move, everything had to be accounted. So there must have been somebody mm -hmm. in charge of the books there. Yep, yep. And just like everything in heaven... There are books. Yep. That's a good point. <laughs> that will be opened. <laughs> that's right. And having right. been an accountant. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that, that's good. They will be counted. You know, they, they'll it, be counted. Uh, it, yeah. And it, it seems like uh, every individual or certain individuals probably had to account for a lot of this treasure. Absolutely. You know, they were, yeah. they were responsible for it, so you better take care of it. Yeah. One of these things we're going to find out in the book of Numbers is that... Uh, Whenever uh, the Levites would become 20, I believe it's 20, um, they, would, you know, they would serve as a, in an apprentice role for a while, and then they would get their job. And I, I often put it this way, just because I think of it th this kind of way, you know, I would have been one of the guys that got, uh, you know, silver plate number 552. Five, five, and that, my job was for the next 
20 or 30 years, I forget, we'll count, um, to always make sure that plate number 552 gets picked up when it's supposed to be picked up and gets put down when it's supposed to be put down. And I'm responsible for that. And you don't get to trade jobs. You don't get to go and say, you know, I don't like this job. I'd like to aspire to this other job. Nope. You get this job, and you have to do this job the whole time you're in service. I would imagine, too, somebody had mentioned in one of the teachings that we had where when you're, when you're, going, when you're in war, um, you have a fellow soldier that always double-checks. Mm -hmm. what you have is responsible mm -hmm. for you you're responsible for him yep. and you double check each other i'm sure they had no oh, i'm sure they did i'm too. sure they had a certain amount of yep. double checking and triple checking yep checklists yeah, i'm sure you're right all the way around i'm sure you're right go ahead well it reminds me of when they write the torah right the mm -hmm. the count mm -hmm. that's why you have gematria you count yep. the words the letters this way and this way, and they better add up. Yep. Otherwise, you've got to start over or do yep. something. Yep. Anybody else? Okay, so they've got all the stuff there. It's all completed. Now then, the last chapter in Exodus, Exodus is putting it together. So let's read that. Um, well, let's just... Uh, someone want to read from... Chapter 1 through chapter 33. Or verse 1 through verse 33, excuse me. Uh, Could you go ahead, Mike? Or Exodus were, were you going to 40? Read yeah, yeah, Exodus 40 from verse 1 to verse 33. 33. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, On the first day of the first new moon you are to raise up the dwelling place of the tent of appointment and shall put it in the ark of the witness and screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it and bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. And you shall set the slaughter place of gold for the incense before the ark of the witness and put up the covering of the door to the dwelling place. And you shall set the slaughter place of the ascending offering before the door of the offering <coughs> of the dwelling place of the tent of appointment and shall set the basin between the tent of appointment and the slaughter place and shall put water therein. And you shall set up the courtyard all around and shall place the covering of the courtyard gate and shall take the anointing oil and anoint the dwelling place and all that is in it and shall set it and all its utensils apart and it shall be set apart. And you shall anoint the slaughter place of the ascending offering and all its utensils and set the slaughter place apart <clears throat> and the slaughter place shall be most set apart. And you shall anoint the basin and its stand and set it apart. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of appointment and wash them with water. And you shall put the set apart garments on Aaron and anoint him and set him apart to serve as priests to me. And you shall bring his sons and put long shirts on them and shall anoint them as you anointed their father and they shall serve as priests to me and their anointing shall be for them an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. And Moshe did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him, so he did. And it came to be in the first new moon of the second year, on the first day of the new moon, that the dwelling place was raised up. Now Moshe raised up the dwelling place and placed its sockets and set up its boards and put in its bars and raised up its columns. 
and, the, and spread the tent over the dwelling place and put the covering of the tent on top of it as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he took the witness and put it into the ark and he put uh, the poles through the rings of the ark and put the lid of atonement on top of the ark and brought the ark into the dwelling place and placed the veil of the covering to screen off the ark of the, of the witness as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he put the table in the tent of appointment on the north side of the dwelling place outside the veil and set the bread in order upon it before Yahweh as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he put the lampstand in the tent of appointment opposite the table on the south side of the dwelling place and lit the lamps before Yahweh as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he put the gold slaughter place in the tent of appointment in front of the veil. <coughs> and burned sweet incense on it as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he set up the covering to the door of the dwelling place, and he put the slaughter place of ascending offering before the door of the dwelling place of the tent of appointment, and offered upon it the ascending offering and the grain offering as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he put the basin between the tent of appointment and the slaughter place, and put water therein for washing and Moshe and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet with water from it. Is that it? Are you no, do, do a all the way to the end? Yeah. No, just to 33, through 33. Oh, 33. As they went into the tent of appointment, and as they came near the slaughter place, they would wash as Yahweh had commanded Moshe. And he raised up the courtyard all around the dwelling place and the slaughter place and placed the covering of the courtyard gate and Moshe completed the work. Okay, this is a lot of little interesting things here. First of all, who set the whole thing up? Who's to say did all this over and over again? Moses. Moses did all this. He set it all up the first time, right? And uh, when did they set this up? The first day of the first month. So how long had it been since... The Passover. How long had it been since they left Egypt? A year. A little, little less than a year because they left the 15th of the first month. And so this is the first of the first month. So it's been a year, almost. I'm just curious, when did they change when to start the new year? Because it wasn't always the, what would it be, a, a Passover or the, the Aviv. Uh-huh. They switched it at some point. Was it already? They must have already done that. No, no. What do you mean they switched it? Are, are you saying when did God said back at the beginning, let's see, uh, during the plagues, maybe just after the 10th plague, he says, this month will be the first of months for yeah. you. Yeah. That's what he said back then. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So he did all that. Mark's got something. So um, there's a few people that believe that this is the time of Yeshua's birth because it a year and a one year and a month ago this month we were in Israel. It happened to be the first day of the first month, and it was on an equinox. Very rare thing, and it happened to be on a Shabbat. Okay. So was, I mean the rarity was so incredible to have the first day of the first month on an equinox and on a Shabbat. If I was to imagine 
if, if, if you're the creator of the heavens and the earth, and you're going to pick a year to set up your tabernacle, and you're going to do it on the first day of the first month, why not do it on the year that it happens to be on the day of the equinox? Yeah, that makes good sense. Just like he picked the year for Yeshua to die that was specifically that year for that reason, so it couldn't have been just any year. Yeah. So here you have, and I, I was trying to find the passage. There's another passage that says that you're supposed to sanctify, that they sanctify the tabernacle on the first day of the first month. So what's interesting is, if Yeshua was born at this time, this is if he came into the world on the first day of the first month, because that's when, you know, so they always say the tabernacle is likened to Yeshua. Mm -hmm. So it's set up the first day of the first month. If he was to come back, it would be really amazing and awesome to pick a first day of the first month and to have it to be on an equinox. So talk about a marker, a marker, and a marker. Yeah. So everything's lining up to marker like it was last year and like it probably was here. Yeah. So just very interesting stuff. Yeah. When, when does the next one of that do? Do you know? Just in case someone asked, I looked it up. <laughs> 2027 and uh, 20, I'm sorry, 2029 and 2037 okay. are the next two times it happens. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Something to look forward to. What's, what does Moses do as he's setting this thing up over and over and over again here? Uh, you can ask what you're going to ask if you don't want to answer that question yet. Oh, I was just going to comment further on what uh, Brother Mark had said. Uh -huh. um, it seems like this tabernacle was the pattern, whereas Yeshua is the real thing. In the, it would be in the seventh month. And he would have tabernacled because he was the tabernacle. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's just my, my thinking. John? So the word the commanded is in here, I think, eight times. Is that what you're referring yep. to? Yep. They kept referring to Lord commanded him to do this. Or well, commanded Moses to do that. It, he, he anointed that, everything. I mean, he anointed everything, everything he anointed. He anointed all the, the I mean, the, all the articles, uh, the, the people, the, 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 you know, Aaron and his sons and the clothing, everything he anointed. What, what, is, what is it with this anointing thing? What does anointing even mean? How do they do that? Anointing means set apart, and that's real important. Whenever, as a matter of fact, the only way I ever finally figured this out in a way that sat in my head was every time I heard the word anointed, I would just say set apart. Now, set apart for what? It's set apart for use by God, right? And it's to be used only by God, for God's purposes only. So that's what anointing is. John's got something. Well, I'm just looking at the first time it's used here. Hamishka. Right? Okay, I don't know exactly where that is, but that's fine. Uh, where was I looking? Like verse 4 or something? Verse 4? No, verse, verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it, which also means set it aside, and all its furnishings and it will be holy. 
So that's what he did. And I guess I just wanted to point that out because that's an important part of what goes on here. Now, this description is the shortest of the three descriptions of this whole process that we're going to read about. This is the first one. And it glosses over uh, anointing Aaron and his sons in just a simple little paragraph. There's a couple of chapters on it in Leviticus. So it, this was a big process, this anointing everything. But it was, uh, it was setting everything aside for use by God. Now, um, you know, I ponder these things sometimes. And sometimes I guess it leads me out in the weeds, but sometimes it doesn't. What's the function of the tabernacle? What, what's, what's the idea behind it? John? Yahweh wishes to tabernacle with his people. Yeah. God's going to come down and live with his people. Now, God being God, he's not, you know, he, <laughs> he's not going to take some pup tent over there. You know, it's, it's, he's going to have to, it's going to have to be set apart for him because of his perfect nature, to say nothing of his uh, timelessness and all the rest of this stuff. He can't just, I mean, he would like to, I honestly believe he would like to just kind of mill around with the rest of us guys, but he's got to be treated differently because God's God. And so this is what it's going to take. This is how he chooses to live with us. Yeah. So I just want to do a, a time check. You said they've been here a year since the Passover. A year's passed by since... Not, not quite, because they well, left on the 15th of the month, but it's been about two, a year. Two weeks shy of a yeah, year, two right? two weeks shy of a year. So when do they get the point where they say... You ain't going nowhere. You're staying here for 40 years. That's like three or four months down the road? Well, I think it's a little longer than that, but it, it's not very long. It's not very long. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Any other thoughts about this whole thing? It's kind of a, I mean, you know, this is a, in a way, it's a good place to end this. You know, it's a good place to end the book because, uh, this particular book, because they've got it up and going now. Let's, if there are no other comments, I'll read the last little paragraph and we'll talk about it for a second. All right? So, starting in verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of Yahweh was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Okay? I just caught this. Uh, verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because, because the cloud abode there. Yeah. He was not allowed to go because he was told not to go or he just physically couldn't go, penetrate this cloud. Well, uh, it could be either. It could be either, but who then could go? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aaron had to go in twice a day just to trim the candles or trim the, the lamps. Right? So, so by the time Moses finished this and anointing all the priests and getting everything set up, he could no longer go in there. Yeah. So it's kind of like he handed the baton over. Yes. Because 
I had the first reaction that John had. It's kind of like this is the same guy that was up on the mountain. All of a sudden now, he can't is go. It because, he can't go. Yeah. Is it because it's too yeah. great or too dense? But no, what you said makes sense. Yeah. Well, it does to me. I, that's just kind of my thought on it. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So, so this was the inaugural voyage, if you will, of the Levitical priesthood. This was, at this point, it's now the Levites that are responsible for uh, maintaining and running God's house the way he wants it run. Yeah. So this is their workplace, in other words. Yeah. It just kind of remind me of the, the Sadducees, right? Mm-hmm. After the destruction of the temple, the Sadducees basically went away. The Pharisees survived through into rabbinic Judaism, mm-hmm. but they went away because they had no, nowhere to work. Well, that's true, yeah. I mean, it's one way of looking at it. Well, you know, I remember reading. You guys can tell me if you think. Well, let me, let me hear this first. Go for it. Um, not all of the Sadducees went away. There was a big divide because of calendar manipulation, manipulation from the Pharisees, and that's part of where they became the Essenes, and we get the caves of Qumran because they had separated from what was taking place in Jerusalem from the corruption at the time. Okay. Well, I, what, I've, what I have read has led me to believe that by the time of Yeshua, the priests that were uh, ministering at the um, temple, whether they be Levi or whether they be Pharisees or Sadducees, were probably not Levites. Matter of fact, I think a strong case could be made that the last real legitimate uh, Levitical priest was probably John the Baptist. I've uh, heard that too. Um, it was during the Maccabees. Yeah. They took over the, uh, the priesthood, but they weren't from the Levitical line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also at the time of the Roman domination, the Romans sold the position. So if you, if you were well off, you could become a priest. All you had to do was pay the Romans a bunch of money. Okay. What do you think about this uh, cloud thing? I did a little looking at the cloud. The cloud, the, the Hebrew word there, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, Shekinah, which comes from Shekin, which is a uh, means to burn. And that would be a kind of a description. Um, the fr- yeah, Mark got something on that. Good, because I'll get out in the weeds real quick with this one. So in number 7-1, this is the verse I was trying to figure where it was at. Number 7-1 says, Now on the, on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that's where we're at right here, mm-hmm. but it's talking about it again here in number 7-1. Yep, yep. Uh, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then, and, and so it just goes, this is the day of consecration. Probably another time to, when you're anointing and consecrating, it's time to blow a shofar because it's, for, anyway, it's the first day of the first month anyhow. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really, this comes from doing the Torah a bunch of times, is whenever you read that, you have this natural tendency, because you're way off in numbers here, and you don't hardly remember this. But it's important to know that they're the same thing. It's the same event. It's just he's telling it about, or it's being told about in the framework of the book of Numbers, which is different than this one. So I'm looking at cloud and 
in my Hebrew, it's He'anan. Okay. And Shekinah is like the Shekinah glory, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's a kind of, I get the idea it's, a, it's like a, a flame, you know, a burning, maybe not associated with heat, but I don't know. And the glory here, and it says, and the glory, ukavad. Kavad, u- kavod, ukavad, yeah. yeah. That's used twice. Okay. I don't know where were you looking. Were no, you no looking? that's fine. I'm, okay. I'm glad you did that. I was just going to say, I kind of traced it through, and I was, uh, I, I just wanted to read this just because I found it interesting. You guys can push back. Um, so the first time we really see this cloud is when they're crossing the Red Sea. Remember, that's the first time we really noticed this, is this cloud, you remember, went back behind the, uh, the Israel. They're up against the, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his chariots are on the road down there after him, and this cloud removes itself behind, between them, so that the, the Egyptians are on one side and Moses and all the, the people are on the other side. That's the first time that we actually see that. That's in Exodus 13. Go ahead. So another thing I wanted to note here, since we're talking about it, this... Numbers chapter 7, it goes on through 84 verses talking about the 12 days that they spent dedicating the altar. Yep. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. So here we have this amazing sanctification of 12 days. So all the way, all the way through the tent. So at the tent, they're gathering their, their rams. Very good point. So they're gathering the rams at the tent, but yet they're still observing what he, they told them to do is, you're going to continue dedicating the altar all the way to the 13th mm-hmm. or the 12th because... The evening of the 13th, when the 14th begins, between evenings, you've got, you, you've got to start slaughtering. Yep. And, you know, you, you think about how many rams, uh, Nathan brought this up to me a few weeks ago, if you've got, just let's say, 2 million people, mm-hmm. how many rams are going to be slaughtered to feed 2 million people? A million anyway, <laughs> right? More or less. So... That's got to be done in a 24-hour period. Yeah. yeah that, those kind of numbers kind of scare me. But yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you're then saying is if, if uh, it did take 12 days to go through this sanctification process, Leviticus has got another picture of this too, but that's neither here nor there. So they go through this whole process. At the end of the sanctification process is when the cloud comes down. And so that would be right at Passover. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, anyway, let me go back to my, my uh, appearances of the cloud. Go ahead. Just because I said that. <laughs> Just because you said that, on the sacrifice of Yeshua, the whole earth had a cloud cover. Good point. The That's whole right. earth, there was no light. Even, uh, who was it, uh, Josephus reports that uh, um, Pilate sent a letter to Caesar telling him, you, all, you know very well, all of the land from here to Rome was without light, and we all had to, had to have enough oil for our, yeah. you know, our lamps. Right in the middle of the day. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yep. So we first saw that cloud then at the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, it next appeared, of course, at Mount Sinai, when it was on the top of Mount Sinai. Um, and as a matter of fact, you can kind of imagine in what we've been reading that it's been on top of Mount Sinai until just right now. After they got the tabernacle all constructed and got it all put together and anointed and everything and did, did this process, then the cloud moved, if you will, from Mount Sinai to the tent. God came down to live in His tent, is what happened. Um, 
And so it descended to the tabernacle and then continued to guide the Israelites all the way through Exodus and Numbers, um, you know, clear through the end of the Torah, if you will. By the time of Eli's death, which would, um, Eli's death, well, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the cloud had departed. So I don't know what happened, but it had departed. However, when Solomon uh, dedicated the temple, the cloud returned. As a matter of fact, uh, reading that section, it's in uh, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5 talk about the cloud reappearing and moving into the temple that Solomon built. It's pretty impressive. Solomon's prayer is like a page and a half, but it's, it's really kind of inspiring to read. And of course, it's, it's been spoken of in Psalm 99 and Psalm 105, but it had obviously departed by the time of the Babylonian captivity. So sometime between when Solomon finished the temple and you know, the, by that time, all kinds of stuff had happened, right? The, the kingdom had divided and the, the northern kingdom had been obliterated and the southern kingdom wasn't a lot better off. And when God allowed the Babylonians to take over, I've often thought about this, you know, you know good and well the Israelites that were the Judahites at that time that were living in, in Jerusalem had been living, I mean, you know, for the past, I don't know, several hundred years, God had lived in Jerusalem. Surely he wasn't going to let the temple be torn down. Surely he wasn't going to let pagans, you know, take over his city. And man, he did. You know, of course he told them. He told them, gazillion times through the prophets that this was going to happen if they didn't straighten up. Um, there's no indication that the appearance, that there was a, an appearance of the cloud during the second temple period. Um, but it did appear at Yeshua's transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. And it'll appear again when Yeshua comes back. Yeah. You bring up an important Part, and that is, the people, whenever calamity is coming, they're thinking, you know, the Almighty, has this is His dwelling place. He's dwelling here. He's not going to let this be torn down. Yeah. And so, whenever He sent the Babylonians against them, and when He sent the Romans against them to, to, to completely obliterate the whole place, they were holding on to it because they really believed God wasn't going to let that happen. Yeah. Both times. Yeah. This is why they went all the way, you know, What's his name that, that destroyed the, uh, the, the, the temple in 70 A.D.? Titus, he was yep. stunned that they said, I've never seen people that are so willing to die. I'm giving them every reason to come out yeah. unharmed. Yeah. And they're, they're just, they're just they, they sound like they want to die. Yeah. But they truly believed with all their heart. And they weren't listening to what the prophets had said. Yeah. They weren't listening to who knows how many God had already sent to them, like he always does, to tell them. You remember Jeremiah told them, if you come out early... You just go ahead and surrender. Life will be well. They'll take you to Babylon, and, and you'll, you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But if you stay, you're going to endure yep. the sword. Yep. So yep. If you, you think in your own heart, no, he's not going to do it. I, this yeah. is his place. I mean, so it's a very good lesson for all of us. Uh, well, yeah, you know, I've done that twice now. It's a good thing that thing's empty. The, um, the thing that's interesting about that is that's presumption. You want to be real careful and don't be presumptuous with God. <laughs> Bottom line. Okay. Any thoughts? Yeah, John. 
I just want to, I was surprised I couldn't find Shekinah. It's not a very common word. Well, let me read this little bit here on the ISBE, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Uh, that which dwells, from the verb Shekhan, mm -hmm. Sheen Kof Nun, uh, Shekin to dwell, reside. This word is not found in the Bible, but there are allusions to it in Isaiah 62, Matthew 17, 5, Luke 2, 9, Romans 9, 4. It is first found in the Targums. See, yeah. see yeah, glory. That's interesting. Yeah, the word Shekinah is not really in the Torah. But Mishkan, Shekin means, Shekin means to reside or permanently stay. And so Mishkan is a form or is a derivative of Shekin. Shekin. So anyway, all that's very interesting. So, any comments about the book of Exodus now that we've finished it? It's different. It's much different than Genesis. If you don't have any final thoughts, I thought this might happen, so me being prepared, I thought, well, Shekinah. It's in verse 35. It's of, of 40. So it's uh, the word settled. The cloud had settled. It's uh, Shekhan. That's Shekhan. That's not Shekinah, No, though. but it's this yeah. form of Shekinah. So it's this, the, 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 the cloud had settled, Shekhan. Verse, uh, verse 35 of chapter 40. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. So that's glory. is the way it's translated in English most of the time. Okay, okay. Filled, yeah, it could be filled. Okay. Needless to say, that's why that's a kind of a difficult... Okay, since it's too early to leave, even though you guys are probably, you know, desiring to do that, I thought we could start on Leviticus. We won't do much, but we'll get us started. And I wanted to talk about Leviticus for a few minutes. Um, Leviticus is a difficult book. I've, I've struggled with it all my life, and I'm going to continue to struggle with it. And so this will be an exercise for all of us to go through Leviticus, but I wanted to talk about it a few, a few minutes first and kind of put it in context before we start on it. Um, and one of the things that I, we've, I think we've done this before, but I want to do it again. I want to talk about chiasms. Chiasm is a, it's something that theologians use, I guess. It's a, it comes from the Greek letter chi. And the Greek letter chi looks like an X, okay? And it's a specific form that they used a lot in Middle Eastern literature. And it's, uh, it's, it, uh, it has a pattern to it. It starts wide and it narrows down to a point and then it broadens back out. So it looks like an X, if you will. I've got an example here in just a minute. The Bible has this chiasm all over the place. But go ahead, Paul. So what's the difference between a chiastic form and an acrostic form? Okay, I'll tell you the difference. Um, acrostic is um, 
having a bunch of text that each line starts with the same letter. That's an acrostic. Acrostic is, uh, that's what it means. Or as chiastic is, is a different kind of a form. And um, it, like I say, it's, it, to me, that's a kind of a, what that is, in my opinion, is a highfalutin word for something that's not that complicated. You know, it, uh, it, it, it shows that you're all hoity-toity and you can talk about real, you know, real important things. But it, it's nothing more than an X. You can see, you can see chiastic forms all over the place. Uh, one of the places that you, you, if you Google chiasm and Genesis 1 together, Genesis chapter 1 is done in a chiastic form. Um, there's, there's chiasms all over the place. And if you think about it, um, the Torah is in a chiastic form. The Torah has five books, and it starts with Genesis, which is broad and comes down. And the middle book is Leviticus, and then it broadens back out again. Now, you may not see that now, but you probably will when we get through with Leviticus. Uh, whenever young Jewish kids learn the Torah, they start with Leviticus. Leviticus is, the, is it, in my opinion, it's clearly the most difficult. It's the most um, least action and the, the most, you know, pondering, if you will. John? To echo what Mark said earlier about if we're to be a nation of priests, and this is sort of like the beginner's manual of how to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it is important. It's the, it's the belly of the Torah is another way I've heard it described as That's a good way well. to put it. The, the heart, maybe, but right. yeah. Yeah, it's the center. Right. It's the center. And uh, what is it, of all the books that Christianity goes, oh. Yeah, it's Leviticus. It's, Le <laughs> it's Leviticus for sure. I was that the way for years. don't like this book. Yeah, they sure do not. Here's, a, uh, here's an example of a chiasm, just a simple one. Um, this is just Matthew 6, 24. starts off, no one can serve two masters. That's, that's the beginning of the X. The end of the X is, says you cannot serve God and wealth. Okay. The next level in says, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So that's a kind of a chiastic form. And so, like I say, when you see this kind of X type thing, this uh, things that point to one center thing and then go away, um, that's, that's an example of a chiasm. And I, I like the fact that the Torah can be looked at that way, but one of the things that's really important is the book of Leviticus is very chiastic. So in a chiastic structure, like you're showing, just like we learn about the Torah in a chiastic structure, the most important of the five books is the one in the central. This is, yeah. is drawing your attention to the Leviticus. Point. Here, the point is the two C's. It's drawing you into the middle. Yeah. This, is, this is where the Creator wants you to pay attention to. Exactly. So like you said earlier in our study tonight, that the whole purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell with His people. However, in order to dwell with us, He has to cleanse the people. He has to get rid of the filth of the people. He has to get rid of the ungodliness and the sin of the people in order that we can be with Him. Mm -hmm. And it takes Leviticus to do that, to tabernacle with him. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's why it's, a, that's why it's the important book. That's right. Because, uh, and I've, uh, I've run across this really good explanation of that. 
It's uh, because, like I say, uh, Leviticus itself is chiastic. And you'll be surprised, maybe you won't be, I was, surprised at what the center of the chiasm is for Leviticus. The place I found this out was uh, on the website, The Bible Project. Thebibleproject.com has got some really good stuff on it. And so I got, uh, I went to thebibleproject.com and I saw the, the one on the book of Leviticus. And so I've got that and we're going to show it. But you can go to thebibleproject.com anytime and you can find it too. And you can look at this. Now, we're going to run this and you can look at it. And after it's over with, uh, I've got a, just a picture of what gets drawn and we'll talk about it a little bit. And that ought to, that ought to be pretty interesting. So can you run that? The book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant, and God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. Now, the book has a really amazing symmetrical design. It explores the three main ways that God helps Israel to live in his presence. that Israel was to perform. Two of these were ways that an Israelite could say thank you to God by offering back to God these symbolic tokens of what God has first given them. Three other sacrifices were different ways of saying sorry to God. So here an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing that their sin has created more evil and death in God's good world. But instead of destroying this person, God, of course, wants to forgive them. And so this animal symbolically dies in their place and atones, which means it covers for their sin. 
And so through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their evil and its consequences. The second set of rituals lays out the seven annual feasts of Israel. And each of these retold a different part of the story about how God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And by celebrating these feasts regularly, Israel would remember who they were and who God was to them. Now, the sections about Israel's priests, you have Aaron and his sons first ordained to enter into God's presence on behalf of Israel. And then in this matching section, we find the qualifications for being a priest. The priests were called to the highest level of moral integrity and ritual holiness because they represented the people before God, but then also represented God to the people. Now, we find out why the priest's holiness matters so much back here in this first section. Right after the family of Aaron was ordained, two of his sons waltz right into God's presence and flagrantly violate the rules. And so they are consumed by God's holiness on the spot. It's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence because it's pure goodness, but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. And so it's important that Israel's priests become holy and also that all of the people of Israel become holy, which is what the next intersections are all about. Chapters 11 through 15 are about the ritual purity required of all the Israelites, and chapters 18 through 20 are about the moral purity of the people. Here's what's underneath all of this purity and impurity language. Because God is holy and he's set apart, the Israelites need to be in a state of holiness themselves when they enter into his presence. This was called being clean or pure. God's presence was off limits to anybody who was not in a holy state, and this was called being unclean or impure. Now, an Israelite could become impure in just a few ways, by contact with reproductive body fluids, by having a skin disease, by touching mold or fungus, or by touching a dead body. Now, for the Israelites, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness because God's essence is life. Now, this is really key. Simply being impure was not sinful or wrong. Touching these kinds of things was a normal part of everyday life. And impurity was a temporary state. It just lasted a week or two, and then it's over. What was wrong or sinful was to waltz into God's presence carrying these symbols of death and impurity on my body. Don't do that. Now, the last way of becoming impure was by eating certain animals. And the kosher food laws are found right here in this section. Now, there have been lots of theories about why certain animals were considered impure and off limits. To promote hygiene or to avoid cultural taboos, the text just isn't explicit. But the basic point of all of these chapters is really clear. All together, these work as an elaborate set of cultural symbols that reminds Israel that God's holiness was to affect all areas of their lives. This corresponding section over here is about Israel's moral purity. The Israelites were called to live differently than the Canaanites. They were to care for the poor instead of overlooking them. They were to have a high level of sexual integrity, and they were to promote justice throughout their entire land. Now here at the center of the book, we find a long description of one of Israel's annual feasts, the Day of Atonement. 
Odds are that not every Israelite sin and rebellion would be covered through the individual sacrifices. And so once a year, the high priest would take two goats. One of these would become a purification offering and atone for the sins of the people. And the other was called the scapegoat. The priest would confess the sins of Israel and symbolically place them on this goat, and then it would be cast out into the wilderness. Again, this is a very powerful image of God's desire to remove sin and its consequences from his people so that God can live with them in peace. The book concludes with Moses calling Israel to be faithful to all of the terms of the covenant. And he describes the blessings of peace and abundance that will result if Israel obeys all of these laws. He also warns them that if they're unfaithful and dishonor God's holiness, it will result in disaster and ultimately exile from the land promised to Abraham. Now, if you want to see how Leviticus fits into the big storyline, it's helpful to look at the first sentence of the next book of the Bible, Numbers. It begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent. So we can see that Moses is now able to enter God's presence on behalf of Israel. The book of Leviticus, it worked. So despite Israel's failure, God has provided a way for their sin to be covered so that God can live with sinful people in peace. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Isn't that cool? I think that's very cool. You need to see it more than once, really. But um, if you put back on the other one, I've, I've got the, that figure, and we can all leave it up there, and we'll talk about it if you want to for a little bit. It'll come back. Here we go. That's the picture that he drew. So Mark's got something. So as this points out, the very center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. So it's what we're to draw attention to. That's it's the, the middle chi- of the chiastic. It's chiasm. the chiastic structure. Yeah. It's, yeah. All about, it's all about being atoned for so that we can, you know, Be come in before a holy God. Yep. All of the covenant promises began with Abraham, which is about 4,000 years ago. And we're close to the end of our whole 7,000-year period or 6,000-year period before the millennial begins. So if you look at these last 4,000 years, the very central part of it is Yeshua's crucifixion. Absolutely. Which is doing exactly what that Day of Atonement did. So if we were to compare where we are today with where it began with Abraham, on a chiastic level, we can see where we're at in in the chiastic structure. Yeah, we're we're the analogous of Abraham. Yeah, Yeah. so so if that's where the, the promises were given we're at the very part where the promises are going to be consummated. Good point. That's a good point. I like that. Yeah. So to me, this helped a lot because it made Leviticus, Leviticus is hard. You know, we're going to get into some hard stuff. But the more we can catch on to what God's really trying to show us, the more we'll get out of it. And the other thing I've learned from Leviticus is that it's, it's the best example of why you need to go through the Torah more than once. Because it, it was, heck, I was 10 times through this thing before I began to catch on a little bit to it. So are there any other thoughts about this? Next week, we'll start. We'll read Leviticus 1 through whatever and get as far as we can go. And we'll have some questions and talk about some things. But like I say, it'll be a, it'll be a fun time. Oh, I just have a question about the word vaikra. Vaikra? Vaikra, because yep. uh, John was saying how each word... Uh, refers to uh, something uh, in 
it's usually the very first line. So read the very first line in the very first chapter of Leviticus, and what does it say? Yeah. Is it have to do with offering or? No, it says Yahweh called to Moses. Spoke. And Vaikra said he called. Oh, he called. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're almost always like that. Yeah. So Vaikra is a a very how do I put it non-descriptive form for the whole book. I mean, in, in a way, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, the, you know, the Latin or Greek-based names that have been given to them are much more descriptive, because Leviticus would be things of the Levites. It's got to do with the Levites and, and all the way the Levites do their jobs, just like Exodus has to do with leaving Egypt, exiting Egypt, you know. But the, the portions are all named after the... I guess the we could group. say, though... In an, in essence, Leviticus is where he calls. Yeah. And this is. Yeah, you could say that. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Okay. If there's uh, if there are any other comments, I'll I'll close. Well, Father God, thank you for the time together. Thank you for your book of Exodus, which has been exciting and fun and. I know I've sure learned some new things, and I hope everybody else has. Uh, just help us to think on these things as we go off this week and uh, bring us back together safely as we look together to start Leviticus next week. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, you guys, thank you very much.